everybody. Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. We are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we're talking to Kwame Christian about finding confidence in conflict. Kwame has this line on his website, the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. And I love the way it sounds. I think it sounds like inspirational and, and we should run toward conflict, but Really, I don't. I run away from it. Like, who wants to be in that moment where, like, you think you're talking to somebody who sees th- things the same way as you do, and all of a sudden <laughs> they say, like, oh, yeah, I don't agree. Often that's in my marriage, by the way. <laughs> not, <laughs> not just in the world. Right. Right. And it's like, I'm sitting in a position of, like, relaxed and unarmed because I'm pretty sure we're on the same page. I mean, sometimes, Dan, but also other people. And then I'm so thrown, I can't recover because it's like, oh, my God, I just entered conflict without having any intention of doing that. And Kwame, his whole thing is, like, run toward it. Like, that's so exciting. He'd probably be like Judy Stenta. (laughs) Remember early on, we had this mentor, Judy Stenta, and she was like so excited about anything that scared us. And I remember hearing about another website that had popped up doing the same thing we were doing. And she was like, oh, that's so exciting. Run toward it, you know, and and Kwame had the same. We're like curled up in the fetal position. Like we're done. We're done. Someone else is doing it. There's no such thing as Coke and Pepsi. So Kwame is kind of like that about conflict, like where we're trying to do as much as we can to reduce the conflict. And he's saying the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. So I don't know. It's really, um, it's a challenge. And I heard someone speak, oh, it was Wes Lowry at the City Club last week who said pretty much the same thing. When you are certain that you don't want to be going towards something, that's the moment to really go at it, right? Like when you're retreating because it seems overwhelming or you can't make a difference, that's the moment to run toward it. Anyway, so Steph and I were thinking, what does that mean for us? What is this whole conversation? First of all, the the conversation is amazing. Hopefully you'll walk away with the same impression. But second of all, like, what does it mean for us when we hear these like magical speakers who seem to have solutions that we haven't considered? And I had this one experience where I had people over for, um, for a meal at my house And there was a conversation at the table, which I knew I was going to be on the other side of that conversation because I often am. And and then I I thought, you know, I don't know, I'm kind of motivated by this idea of running towards something. Let me see if I can do it. So I said to everyone at the table, how about if everyone just talks, says their position, no one interrupts them, no one, you know, jumps and says, well, can I tell you another perspective? Like you just go around turn after turn after turn telling your story and tell me how you feel about this untenable situation. So the first thing was that the person who said, I'd, I'd love to go, but I'm offended by the way you posed the question. I don't think the situation is untenable. So before we even started, I, I had to say like, oh my God, I you're so right. I actually didn't mean to present it with a bias. Like, I guess I thought everyone thought it was untenable and that that was a neutral word. But obviously, it clearly wasn't. Which is so funny because you were entering that conversation to allow people to, like, you weren't hiding your agenda. Like, I I mean, I wasn't there, but I know you well enough. Like, that you were really genuinely trying to get people to say how they felt. Yeah, I I was curious. Like, what does everyone feel about this story? And I threw in a word, like, casually. And it, it almost thwarted the process. I quickly retreated and said, you're totally right. I am so sorry. I'd love to hear what you have to say. And it continued. So yeah. the first part of this is that I got the question wrong already from yeah. the start. 
The second part is I was removed enough to be able to actually own that. And then the third part is it was magical. It was unbelievable how respectful everybody was, how honest everybody was. And at the end, I got texts after the meal together saying that was one of the best conversations that we've had together. So there were many steps to, the, to getting to that point that were your heart kind of skips a beat and you're like, oh man, did I just dig myself deep into something? So I was thinking about, uh, there was a conversation I wanted to be having with one of, one of our kids and I had been thinking about it and thinking about it. And I finally, you know, said to this kid, I want to sit down at some point today. I've got some stuff on my, you know, on my mind. I, I really want to talk to you about. So we sit down and I wrote now, also I had some time to think about it, right? I knew we were having this conversation, something that had been bothering me. And I remember we were sitting there and we were probably, I don't know, had been talking half an hour, 45 minutes. And I remember thinking, I want out. I want out of this conversation. This is so not going where I where I want it to go. And I don't even know what me what made me stay in, but it goes back to what you just said, where they're like, well, that's where the magic happens. Like right when you feel like you, I forget how you said it, but I was like, oh my God, wait, I've been there. I've totally been there. Yeah, you have to run toward it, right? Like run toward yeah, it. Yeah, run toward it. Now, I can't say I ran toward it. I just didn't leave it. It would be a lie if I said I ran toward it because I didn't. No, but I guess they might be, if we consider them the alternative running away. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so I did not leave. And and thank God I didn't because we got so deep. We just kept going and then we were able I felt like it was the first of many. It wasn't it's like parenting. Like I didn't feel like it was a one and done. But all I could think was, oh my God, had I left at that point, I wanted to leave. We would have never gotten to that other stuff. Magical might be overstating it, but it was good and it was valuable is what I would say. It was so valuable. You know, maybe it's magical when you look at what it laid out for future conversations. Like maybe it wasn't yes. that one thing, but you got through that. So that the next one, like I spent many a conversations as a mother talking to a kid with like this deep dread about what was about yes. to come. But knowing that I had to have that conversation and also knowing it likely wasn't going to go well. And yeah. what I can tell you is I, I often wasn't wrong. They often didn't go well. But it did it did take us to a place where communication got easier. Not perfect, but easier. Then the other part of the conversation with Kwame <laughs> is, you know, it's really, first of all, his book is great. but it, And it's about having difficult conversations about race. And one of the things that I feel over and over again is how scary it is to enter those conversations. Because you so desperately want to improve the relationship and not damage it. And I guess maybe all of these conversations have to happen with us going in, just being ready to apologize. Yeah. Or even, even starting out with the preemptive, I hope you'll know that I'm here to have this conversation with the best intention. Cause he does talk about intention. Yeah. Right? So I don't know, but it's such a fueled environment right now. Like it's so easy to, to get somebody, get, get the whole room in high agitation. Yeah. Right? And when you want to bring it down and not elevate it, maybe the thing is to go in ready to try something and then retreat if it doesn't work. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking about your example and presumably if you're at a meal together, you have some commonality or they're friends or there, there is maybe a sense of trust. We're very far apart politically, so it often yeah. doesn't go well. It really yeah. often it, it doesn't it, it doesn't ruin the friendship, but often everyone just goes back to their corners in the boxing ring and just says like let's not talk about this, it, which is yeah. what happens so much with conversations late these days. But I don't want to just agree to disagree. I want to actually 
find out, like, are we so far apart? Maybe we're not so far apart. Maybe we are and we just accept that. But how do you know if you just kind of, if, if every start of a meal is uh, no politics at the table, right? Yeah. Well, it's, well, that's funny, Sue. So that got me thinking, like, is, like you're saying, like, okay, yeah, maybe we're so far apart. And is the goal just to maybe uh, tease that out and see where and why we're so far apart and then just accept it? Or does recognizing that we're so far apart give us a different understanding? Like, what's the, is the goal just respect and understanding or is the goal, well, if I know where this person stands or if I understand it better, it might actually change how I feel. I think they're not mutually, yeah, but I don't think they're mutually exclusive. The only negative to asking that question is if I thought at the end I could change someone's mind. That's not the goal, right? Like I'm not, I'm not setting out to have my mind changed or your mind changed. I just, I want to have a little bit of understanding because maybe by not giving you the chance to talk to me, I can't see that, that out of the six things you said, one of them were on the same page, right? Yeah. Or I just feel your deep concern in a different way than I do. And I can appreciate that. Yeah. I I don't think it's an either or of those two questions. I'm not setting out to change your mind. And I'm also like, you know, just, just trying to understand it. It's a, it's a world of not listening to each other right now. And yeah. so we can, we can fill in the blanks with what we're pretty sure they're thinking. Sometimes it's, it's really not the case, right? Yeah. Like that you, that you find out that someone's past brought them to where they are today. And that, yeah, that makes total sense that they, you know, lived under certain circumstances. And so now they're more protective of something than you are, right? Whatever that is. Well, and that's the whole thing. And we may have talked about this on the podcast before. I can't remember because maybe we've talked about everything is that the story core there next, what they're working on is that one small step. And it's that when you sit in a conversation with somebody that you understand how they got there and it just builds a deeper understanding and they're not there to change minds. So I think that's, you know, that's that same thing. Like, you know, can can you sit and listen to someone's opinion? Um, like you said, you know, at the table, like we're not going to interrupt each other. We're just going to say how we feel. Yeah. Well, I, what I would tell you is that listening to people like Kwame Christian, to me, it's so inspiring. Even if I take away one new tool from each conversation with someone like Kwame, I feel better equipped to do this, to step forward and to, you know, kind of say I'm. I'm strong enough to hear people who feel differently than I do and not have it ruin the relationship. And I think actually it makes the relationship better because saying there's a whole part of each of us that we're just not going to talk about, it, does, it doesn't do anything. There's no, no, no good comes out of that. It, that just feels so inauthentic is what I would say. You know, I don't know. Maybe some people can, I don't know. I think there are I, people- I think it could feel protective. Oh, that's a good word. If yeah. there's families where it's very volatile, like, you know, staying away from topics might be the thing that saves the family relationship. But especially like when it comes to grandparents and grandchildren who that generation gap might really have different belief systems. You just read my mind. Right. So asking why you believe, like, so tell me why you believe that way might really be enlightening for that grandchild if they, if they can do it. Up next is our conversation with Kwame Christian. We can't wait for you to join us.
Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but, you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Green. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Today's guest is Kwame Christian. He's the founder and CEO of the American Negotiation Institute and the host of Negotiate Anything, a podcast to help you find confidence in conflict and negotiate anything. Kwame, thanks so much for being here with us. We do live in this time where there's a lot of conversation around people saying zero tolerance for bullying. Let's get rid of conflict, right? Like all of these big absolute statements, which kind of go against human nature. Like we are humans who are flawed and we're going to live in a world where there is conflict, right? It's inevitable in our relationships. So if you take that as a given, which it's your business, shouldn't we start with kids teaching them how to do conflict resolution when they're young and all the way into their adolescence, right? Wouldn't that be just an obvious plan to do? To create adults who can do that? Yes. And it boggles my mind as to why we haven't done that yet. And it's it's so interesting because for us at the American Negotiation Institute, our motto is we believe the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. And so we don't want it to just be something that we shy away from and run away from. We can actually turn it into an opportunity if you have the skills. But what we see in the workplace a lot of times is people don't have these skills, but not just in the workplace, but at home and family and friends. Nobody really has the skills to have difficult conversations. And then we wonder why these difficult conversations <laughs> tend to either not happen at all when they should or go very poorly when they do. You work with schools. Are the students inherently good at dealing with conflict? Can they be taught? What does Tell us what that looks like. Yeah, well, let's just keep it super simple. So conflict resolution Having these difficult conversations, it's a skill, not a talent. So you have to focus on building those skills. But if you haven't been taught, then you won't have the skills because a lot of it requires, number one, going against your instinct. So you think about the fear responses. We have fight, flight, and freeze. We don't have fight, flight, freeze, and empathize and listen respectfully. (laughs) That's just not how human beings respond, right? And so if we just rely on our natural human instincts, it's going to lead us astray in these difficult conversations. So no, they are not very good at having difficult conversations. And I think that's been exacerbated by the social media world that we live in, where the algorithms just promote the the things that you want to hear. And if you ever see things from people that you don't agree with, it's usually giving you the opportunity to vilify that and it gets you really inflamed. So they don't have the skills necessary to have difficult conversations, but they certainly can be taught. It's just like any other skill. You have to learn the fundamentals and then you actually have to put the tools into practice. But again, 
where are they getting these opportunities to be taught in a meaningful way? They're, they're simply not. And that's one of the, the biggest om- omissions in our education system, in my opinion. What would it look like if they had it? Sunshine, rainbows, and unicorns. <laughs> That's what it well, what would it take like. to get there? Yeah, I think what we have to do, what we have to have is a commitment on the community level to, to see that value in these difficult conversations. I, we have to create curriculum around it. And there's a way to do it, but we have to recognize that with every decision we make, there's an opportunity cost. There's a limited amount of time in the day. And so we have to find a way to prioritize that and find opportunities to fit it into the curriculum. But the curriculum is already a a very competitive ecosystem. And there aren't very many loud voices out there promoting the value of effective communication. I think if we were to actually talk to people about it. I don't think anybody would say conflict resolution and communication (laughs) skills, not important. Most people would, but we just don't have those loud enough voices pushing that narrative. And so that's why we don't have it. So it's doable. It can be done. And I think if if we start to train our young people when they are younger, now we have the opportunity to make this part of who they are. You think about the age of acquisition, approximately 12 when it comes to learning a language with fluency. Maybe it's something similar when it comes to effective conflict resolution. If we can teach these skills earlier, it feels natural by the time they get to college and matriculate into the workforce. So I think the the downstream effects of this could be pretty substantial. Your book, which is a great book, um, it should be mandatory reading, How to Have Difficult Conversations Around Race. It, it's so timely. Everyone really should get it and read it because it's so helpful. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I want to step back for a second and say, we use this phrase, difficult conversation, charged conversations, whatever it is, but it's like, what does that really mean? What, what is the thing that gets to the point where we maybe don't even know we're in the midst of a difficult conversation, right? Like what, what's going on? I think it's two things. It would be conflicting interests and emotionality. That's what changes the tenor of a conversation because right now, All three of us, we're having a conversation. We wouldn't describe it as difficult. um, But I think if we recognized at some point that our our interests were not aligned and then we started to feel some type of way about it, that's when we start to have that difficult conversation. And so if you have that opportunity to have the difficult conversation and you recognize that those are the two root causes for what makes it so difficult, if you have negotiation skills, then you can reconcile those differences and find creative ways to meet each other's needs during the problem-solving process. And if you understand how to resolve conflict and manage emotions, then you can decrease the emotional temperature in the room so we can have a, a greater level of emotional stability so we can have a higher level conversation. And when you think about the skills that are required to get this done, it's really not Nothing that groundbreaking. It's simple, but that doesn't mean that it's easy to put into practice when the time is right. And so that's why we have to take the time to not only learn the skills, but practice the skills so it becomes part of our natural approach to these difficult conversations. It doesn't mean we agree, right? Like none of this is about agreement or disagreement to create the point where it becomes a difficult conversation. Correct. Correct. It's just that those competing interests where I have a goal and I see you as potentially thwarting that goal or standing in the way of the goal and vice versa. And what's interesting too, is that something else that can make it really challenging or an interesting dynamic is that the conversation might be difficult for Mm. one person, but not as difficult for the other person too. When there's not that emotional balance, 
it can create both opportunities and challenges because it could create an opportunity because if somebody has a, a level head, and then they also have the skills to lower the emotional temperature on the other side, then you can actually have a potential for a positive interaction. But then on the other side, it could potentially cause a little bit of resentment because I care a lot and it's demonstrated by my, <laughs> my emotional challenge here. How do you not care about that? <laughs> the, the fact that you are unbothered by this situation <laughs> bothers me even more. I have about 85 follow-up <laughs> questions. You say, you say that conflict is an opportunity. What do you mean by that? Yeah, when you think about conflict as an opportunity, we make the mistake of focusing only on the problem at hand, but we don't recognize that there are boundless opportunities on the other side of difficult conversations. So think about it. If we have these conversations, I have an opportunity to learn from you. I have an opportunity to understand you. And so when we think about learning, a lot of times we focus on our perspective on truth and the definition of truth and what is real and what is not <laughs> is becoming fluffier and more nebulous <laughs> as the day goes on, right? And that's just the unfortunate reality of the situation. But we have to recognize that even though we might have different perspectives on what truth is, that is still valuable information for me to gather. The way that you see the world, even if I vehemently disagree with it, is vital information for me as it relates to this conversation, but also as it relates to future conversations I might have with somebody who is like you. And so that's an example of an opportunity there too. It might also be an opportunity to take a little bit of a relationship test because the way that I see it, negotiation isn't the art of deal making, it's the art of deal discovery. I'm coming together with you in this conversation to see whether or not a deal could be made. Not all, not all deals are meant to be made. And sometimes the conflict could demonstrate that there's a fundamental problem in the relationship. And now you have a choice with the data that you've received as to whether or not you want to move forward with this relationship too. So even if from the outside looking in, people might say this conflict or difficult conversation wasn't successful. If you have that opportunity-based thinking and you try to look for those opportunities, you will be able to find some way to progress regardless of the outcome. Is the subject matter way less important than the personalities coming into that room? I would say both are very important. I would add to the list of things that are important would be strategy and process too. If I understand the subject matter and I also understand the person on the other side, then I can create a bespoke strategy for the situation. And then usually what I need to do is I don't need to come up with all sorts of really technical negotiation skills or techniques, usually what I need to do is just hold to the fundamentals long enough for the opportunity to present itself. Listen, empathize, summarize, ask questions, gather information, manage the emotions. And if I keep on going through that process, good things happen. But depending on the personality on the other side, I will adjust my approach for that person. You know, so if it's an introvert, I'm going to slow down the process. They process on a slower, deeper level. So I'll ask more questions, give them more time to speak. But for a somebody who's an extrovert, I understand they process differently. So as I'm listening, I'm going to recognize that they are thinking out loud as well as communicating to me. So it changes the way slightly that I interact with the person in the conversation. So subject matter and personality are critical but they're critical as far as it relates to the strategy that you apply and the process that you stick through throughout the conversation. My reaction to what you just said is like my brain hurts a little bit because <laughs> what I know that means is I have to show up without heightened emotion. Yeah. I have to show up 
in a different way than I maybe want to show up to have this conversation. And that hurts my brain to remember that all the time. I guess we'll talk about more, more about this, how you have to show up. But you have this tagline. You've said it twice already. The best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. First of all, I love it. It just rolls off your tongue and it's, it's great. But I was trying to think, well, what's an example of that? So I'm throwing it to you. What's an example of that? Well, the, the person who inspired that is my wife. And so we've been married for 13 years. And anytime you have a relationship that long, there are going to be ups and downs. And so there's, there's always that part of you that might want to hold back from leaning in and having those difficult conversations, saying what's required to say or what's on your heart. And especially within a, a, the confines of a relationship, the, it can be, it's a very vulnerable place to be where you're admitting that you have wants and needs and the, the person that you're talking to is the source of those things. And that can make you feel very vulnerable because you have one source for that particular brand of happiness that you're searching for. And sometimes it can be really challenging to give that power to somebody else. But when you do and you lean in and have those conversations, that's when you avail yourself to the best possible iteration of the relationship. And so you have to lean in and, and take that risk in order to potentially improve the quality of your life and your relationships too. So we're talking kind of up here. Can we come down to tools? Can you give us some tools um, to have these hard conversations? How do we how do we do that? I will give you the only tool you need. This will get you 99% of the way there. If you want to learn more, check out the Negotiate Anything podcast for the other 1%. But <laughs> here, here's 99%. So it's the Compassionate Curiosity Framework. It's a, an approach to difficult conversations that you can use both at work or at home, regardless of the subject matter. So for me, as a, as a lawyer, I use this when I'm negotiating with opposing counsel. As a father, I use this. As a husband, I use this. If I'm having a difficult conversation in the business world, I use it. But also if I'm having a sensitive conversation about race, gender, sexuality, anything like that, I use this too. And so it's also designed for the internal negotiation with yourself. So it's designed to be portable in that regard. So three steps. Step number one, acknowledge and validate emotions. Step number two, get curious with compassion. And step number three is joint problem solving. So you'll use that in the conversation with the other person, but also with yourself as a tool of emotion management and decision-making and bias reduction, you could use it too. So you can say, I'm gonna acknowledge and validate my own feelings. What am I feeling? What am I believing? What's the conclusion I'm coming to? Why do I feel that way? What information did I use to get to that destination, that cognitive or, or emotional destination? Why do I feel this way, right? Then the last step is reconciling the differences between our heart and mind. That's the joint problem solving internally. So what would satisfy me emotionally? And then what should I actually do in the situation? And as you go through that process, you calm down. And as you practice it, you'll get faster at it. Now I can do this in probably about five seconds in a conversation. But then during the conversation, I know what to say and when to say it. If they present with emotions, I acknowledge and validate the emotions. If I, the emotional temperature has dropped down, now I'll get curious with compassion to gather information, to empathize, create connection and build trust. Then after I gather all the information and the emotional temperature is down, I use joint problem solving, reconciling those differences, figuring out what works for both parties. That's so in line with what experts have been saying forever about parenting. Mm -hmm. Like how that, that is a, especially parenting teenagers, right? 
Okay, so I was thinking about times where I think I falter, and I've noticed when I am trying to find solace in my inability that other people seem to falter in those situations also. When you go at a conversation where you think you have someone aligned with you, like you're looking for kind of that support, something happened and someone said something and it made you upset, and you tell your ally, and you find out they're not, (laughs) right? Like those moments, I think... You're so off kilter. And I don't know how you recover from those. I'm not good at it. I was just at someone's house for a meal and something like that happened and the host couldn't recover. (laughs) Like those are things that happen in social lives, right? Like, or even up sure at work, whatever it is Mm -hmm. with our kids, where we are casual, our, our defenses are all down and we didn't show up because we didn't know we needed to show up with that kind of unemotional state. Yes. So first of all, let's address why that happens to you, Sue. There's a very specific reason. I'm going to go on the couch for a minute. <laughs> wait, lie wait, down. Wait, is there room for me? <laughs> yes, please. We can do, I can, okay. both of you at the same time, I'll, I'll explain <laughs> it. It's in. the same reason. So looking at both of you, you appear to be humans and that's probably the cause of the problem. <laughs> I'm assuming <laughs> you're also talking to humans, which also cause your problems too. I knew it. <laughs> Most people find themselves in that situation. <laughs> that's it. And I, I agree with you. I think it's it's more emotionally jarring when you are expecting support and you get the other thing. Yeah. When you think about the breakdown of relationships, any type of relationship, business or personal, it's the violation of expectations that leads to the breakdown. So I was expecting this and you gave me that. And the difference between what I expected and reality is the, agree, the amount of frustration, animosity, resentment I start to feel. And so when you go in and you have positive expectations for this interaction, and it's the exact opposite, it causes a lot more emotional distress. And so the first thing I would do is take some time. We have to recognize that, I mean, think about a hot pan. If I'm cooking and I have a hot pan, and then I want the pan to be cool, yeah, I might be able to run some water on it, but at the end of the day, time is going to be a factor. <laughs> I, I need some time for that pan to cool off. And we have to come to terms with that with ourselves. Sometimes the best thing you can do is not have the conversation at that time. I'm, I am not at my best. I remember one of the biggest negotiations in the history of, of, of our company, uh, the American Negotiation Institute. I emailed the other side the night before and I said, listen, I have had a rough day and I had a rough night. I will not be at my best for this negotiation. I think it would be better if we just postpone this for the sake of both of us. And and they appreciated that candor. And so I think in those situations, let's say in the example that you gave, it's tough. If the person <laughs> is the host, you're in my house. Uh, what do I do? Um, so what I would do in that situation is just say, hey, give me one second. I'll be right back. And if you say that, nobody's going to, it would be a weird situation. It's like, no, please don't gather yourself emotionally. That'd be an inappropriate response. (laughs) You know? Then what I would do is I would think about what my goal is for this interaction. Most likely it, it was a social event. We weren't here to like, to, to hash out really hardcore disagreements between ourselves. And so I probably would have said to myself, now is not the time to have this conversation. So I would have come back to the conversation and said, hey, Sue, Stephanie, I really appreciate what you brought up. And I, I realized that this situation or this conversation might be a little bit touchy for the atmosphere we're trying to create for this dinner party. So let's talk about this later. I still think it's important for us to talk about it, but Let's talk about something else right now and just push it out. And again, when you think about negotiation, 
you're negotiating for different things. And sometimes you're just negotiating for time. Okay. So I'm just going to give you an aside. It, it wasn't with me. I was at there. My friend walked, the host walked out of the room into the kitchen and I followed her and I said, here's a glass of wine, pull yourself together. <laughs> Cause she was totally right. But you could see like smoke coming out of her ears and everywhere. Anyway, it was just so interesting. Like turn on a dime. <laughs> well, and in your example, Kwame, your example, you knew your own emotional temperature in that example. You knew. And so you said, okay, I'm, I'm going to table this. What we don't know, <laughs> even if we know that that person may be coming in because of the subject matter, you know, char emotionally charged, we don't know what happened leading into that day. You had the like you said, this gift of time that you were able to give yourself, but we don't know what that other person is walking in with. So the responsibility, I think what I'm hearing you say, maybe in the from the last question, then combining this is that we have to take that responsibility and take that temperature as well, that it's up to us to constantly take that temperature, which is a big uh, burden's not the word. I'm like, it's a big responsibility, I guess is the best way to say that. Yeah, responsibility is the key word. I want everybody who listens to this podcast to accept responsibility for the outcomes of these conversations. And I know that's not like a like a popular take, but the reality is we have more influence than we think. So what we have to recognize is that it only takes one person to improve the quality of the relationship, mm. okay? And that person should be us. And so in the last book, I introduced this concept called conversational leadership. So in every conversation I have, every negotiation, every difficult conversation, I am going to assume that it's my responsibility to make sure that this conversation goes productively. And people are going to take detours from the conversational highway and they're going to say offensive things. They're going to say hurtful things. They're going to say things that are irrelevant and they're going to invite me to join them. Hey, I insulted you and disrespected you. Come with me. Do it back to me. Let's go back and forth, right? They want that same energy. But it's your responsibility to recognize that that's a detour that takes you off track and then put us back on track too. So Stephanie, to your point, we have to recognize that our own emotions internally will sometimes be a detour. And so I have to recognize that and recognize it'll take me off track. But then on the other side, I might recognize that the other person's emotions is presenting a challenge in the conversation. So I'm going to utilize compassionate curiosity and try to lower the emotional temperature. And sometimes the emotional temperature is too high and I cannot lower it enough to pr be productive. The pan is too hot. It needs more time. And so the thing you do not say is, hey, Sue, a little bit emotional. You should probably chill out. You want to take a time out? <laughs> <laughs> not, not the approach I suggest doing. I would never do that. <laughs> and so what I, what I do is I take responsibility for this too. So I'd say, hey, listen, Sue, I, I really appreciate your candor in this conversation. You've given me a lot of information and a lot of it is, is new to me. So I appreciate this. Um, let's let's continue this conversation tomorrow because I'd like some time to, to sit with this and process before we move forward. Because in my mind, I'm saying uh, this is not the time to have this conversation. I'm not going to be able to push forward, but I'm not going to make the other person feel self-conscious or risk them feeling shame by saying, hey, you're, you're emotionally unstable. Stop. You know, so I'll just... <laughs> <laughs> so I'll take it. I'm going to try to think that because probably what I'm really thinking is you're an asshole, but I'm going to go for yours next time. 
<laughs> Listen, this is this is a rule that I follow for myself, Sue. I say, if I am in a heated conversation, the more I want to say something and the faster the comeback comes, the less I need to say that thing. Because I say to myself, oh, this feels so good. This feels so good. And I know I want to say it. And that's exactly why I shouldn't. Oh, great <laughs> advice. Oh. Directed totally at Sue. <laughs> Sue, I am, I am sitting right next to you. Oh my goodness. This next question relates to a lot of things. It could relate to conversations about race. It could relate to com- difficult conversations with our teens. And that is, what if I'm afraid to ask a question or make a comment because I'm fearful of getting it wrong? Mm. Well, I think we have to recognize that honesty is the best policy. And if you feel that way, say that. And so what I suggest people do is utilize a disclaimer. And so I'll give a great great example. So when I was uh, first starting off as a lawyer, I had a mentor that was paired with the, that I was paired with with the Supreme Court mentoring program, an older white conservative lawyer. And so he immediately once we once we met each other, we knew we were very very different. And um, so he said, hey, listen, Kwame, I'm, uh, you're a young pup, I'm an old dog. And so for me, my goal is to teach you how to be a good lawyer. Um, but I want you to know that in the past, uh, people have accused me of being racist. And to this day, I don't know what I did to earn that. And so I want you to, as I teach you how to be a better lawyer, I want you to feel comfortable correcting me if I ever mm. say something wrong or offensive. And you know what? He said a lot of wrong and offensive stuff, (laughs) but we had, because he gave me that disclaimer, I didn't feel uncomfortable letting him know. And he was always humble and appreciative when I let him know that, hey, that what you said, I know you, I know you didn't mean it poorly, but it came off offensively because of these reasons. And he apologized and we move on. We're, We're buddies to this day, you know, years and years later. And so I think when you want to say something like because not because it's an emotional thing, <laughs> but because it's some it's somewhat germane to the conversation. Maybe you have a question, but it might be sensitive in nature. Just say, hey, I'm, I, there's something that's on my mind and I, I feel like it might be causing a barrier between us and I might be completely wrong. And so if what I say is wrong or offensive, I want you to feel comfortable calling me out and let me know. Um, but I feel like I would be doing us a disservice and our relationship a disservice if I didn't just bring this up. And you can feel free to respond how you want. And then you say that thing. And when you respond, when you lead in with that type of humility, you're addressing the issue of intent. Because a lot of times, if you take the exact same behavior, but then you put in malicious intent, then it becomes much more hurtful, you know? And so if you address that intent and say, hey, this is my intent, I am genuinely trying my best and my best might be very problematic. And if it is, you can see it and I might not see it. And I need your help to be better. And just being straight up with that is one of the best ways to move forward. This is all about being transparent in the in the ways that we typically don't do. We don't walk into a room and immediately say, oh my God, I'm so nervous to be here. I feel really insecure. I mean, I think it's amazing to be able to do that. But most of us feel like we have to protect ourselves, like not to let people see the real us. So that I think is unbelievable, that story. I think also what goes with it is that if you open that door and someone comes back to you with something, you have to be able able to apologize, right? Oh, yeah. But there's a way to apologize that doesn't really work. Is there a way that that you apologize that actually works? Yeah. I mean, Sue, I could just take your advice and use chat GPT. That's what I'll do. (laughs) (laughs) 
Everybody, oh, you, you heard really it. pulled that off. You pulled that off. <laughs> I was like, "Where's this going?" <laughs> Very well played. Oh, but yeah. So let's <laughs> let's not do that. I think one of the the critical distinctions is hinges on the word "if" versus "that." So let's run through some examples. So, hey, I'm sorry if what I said was offensive versus, hey, I'm sorry that what I said was offensive. Massive difference. And um, I was, I remember I was doing one training and uh, there was a husband and wife in the training. And I said, which one sounds better, if or that? And the husband raised his hands confidently. He's like, if. And I was like, you're wrong, man. <laughs> and she said, thank you. <laughs> I've been telling him this for years. Because if you make it a conditional apology in that way, really what you're saying is this. It's like, hey, listen, what I said was completely above board. And I'm sorry that because of your fragility and fragile emotional state that you couldn't handle what I said it must suck to be you like that's what we're saying that's not an apology (laughs) you're apologizing for the way they are that's not that's not an apology and that makes it worse what you do is you own it and the thing is that we have to recognize that different people perceive things differently and the at the end of the day i am sorry that i hurt you what i said might not have been a mistake that doesn't change the fact that i'm sorry that i hurt you and i did in fact hurt you there i'm not questioning the reality of your emotional state and that's when that's how you can actually move forward it requires full ownership and that's what i think people often miss all right so we're going to wrap this up with the question we ask all of our guests what is the biggest myth about teenagers <laughs> i think the biggest myth about teenagers is the fact that we believe they are just tiny adults it's or not even they might be the same size but less mature adults they psychologically they're very different and w- once we start to accept the differences then we can connect in a more authentic type of way you know i don't have teens yet but i do have a two-year-old and um he is hitting this no stage hard like really hard harder than my my other one did and i said oh this no stuff is uh it's a myth no, Dominic loves saying no. He will say no to my general existence. Like I just come up to him, no, but I don't take it personally because I understand that's where he is in his cognitive development. If we fast forward to, to the, the teenage years, the frontal lobe and the prefrontal cortex, the both are still not fully developed. And that's going to have an impact on their executive function, their decision-making and things like that. And so they might look and sound adult-ish, but it doesn't change the fact that their brains aren't fully developed. Kwame, it was great to hear you at Case Western Reserve. It was great to read your most recent book. And and to have you here today is such a treat. We really appreciate your time and that chat GPT sucks. (laughs) And thank you. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us today. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. You can follow Your Teen on Facebook by searching Your Teen for Parents and on Instagram and Twitter at Your Teen Mag. Okay, so we're we're two moms who share everything. We read an article and we go like, oh my God, my friend, my friend has that same story. We listen to a podcast and we think to ourselves, who can we share this with? It was so good. And we're hoping you're the same. We're hoping you're listening to our podcast, Your Team with Sue and Steph, and you're so excited by what you're hearing that you're sharing it with a friend. We're so grateful in advance for you doing that because that changes our whole story. We get much more exposure 
and we want everyone to hear what our fabulous, talented experts have to say to help us raise our teenagers. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com and listen to all our episodes on evergreenpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your Teen with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus our favorite producer, Hannah Leach, and audio engineer, Gray Longfellow. We'll see you next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.